Welcome everyone back to the Brocast. I'm David <laughs> Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined by that giggling man over there, Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? <laughs> I'm just forever giggling at your intros and how I, I know what you're doing. I said, what, about three or four weeks ago, how you nail this every time. Now you're trying to mix it up a little, aren't oh, you? I'm, I'm always mixing it up. I'm always mixing it up. Because yeah. the thing is, I get bored. You know, some people can do the, like, automaton thing where they lead it off the exact same way every time. I can't. Yeah. I can't do it. Yeah. Can't do it. Yeah, gotta, no. gotta sing no. song it a little bit. Gotta do something. You just, you're just never satisfied. That's no. kind of who you are. You just push the envelope. You, you push yourself to be better. You know me so well. I'm always in pursuit <laughs> of perfection. Real perfectionist, <laughs> this guy over here. I don't. I don't write a thing and then never read it after I'm done writing it. Like I don't, I don't do that. That's not a thing I do. No, I, no. I certainly never. I certainly never like publish a thing on our website, for example, without actually ever reading it over myself. I've never done that in my life, honestly. I I okay. Really? Is that no, is that no, true? No, no, that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. That's actually every that. story. Uh, Tracy. Yeah. Yes. We got a lot to talk yeah. about today. We do, we do. Uh, on the broadcast. Uh, UCLA football um, may start spring practice at some point. We'll know probably a couple of days in advance. But they did release the Pac-12 uh, UCLA's full football schedule for the 2021 season, which is some exciting news. And UCLA basketball is finishing up its season with USC tomorrow, and then uh, potentially. And it seems baffling to me that this is still the case. Potentially winning the Pac-12 title if Oregon also loses to Oregon State while UCLA beats USC. It's not. It's not completely unrealistic. It. It, it truly is not. Um, Oregon State isn't that bad. They've been playing pretty well. As we saw, Oregon is beatable if you play a decent game for thirty-eight minutes instead of thirty, and. Uh, did you happen to see um, – have you watched SC recently? They're not very good right now. Damn, and I don't want to jinx this because everyone said I was a jinx, but they are – when I watched them, they they did not necessarily have a lot of energy. I mean, they did <laughs> – they, they didn't look like they were trying very hard. I will in, say they did, they did murder Stanford and like I think um, – uh, basically prevented Stanford from ever having a good basketball program again earlier this but week. But that was a matter of the team that was was giving up more. True. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, but I do, I, I wonder if USC did right the ship a little bit because it is a very talented team. But no, I think Evan Mobley has looked pretty checked out, honestly. Um, I, I don't know. I've, I've never been a fan of Andy Enfield as a coach. Um, and I just, you, you've never made that clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I wonder if motivation, uh, more so than with other teams kind of waxes and wanes, um, just dependent on just weird things going on in the program more than, you know, with competently coached programs. So very talented team. They can always blow up and, and do something big, but, um, they've got a very inconsistent approach to the court. Well, um, if you're Evan Mobley and, just let's get into that seven, that head on the top of that seven foot All right, body. I got to climb a little bit. You're at least what the number two pick in the NBA draft. 
Yeah, I mean, three, you're probably top five, first, right? I, top I, don't, five. I don't know as, you know. Wouldn't you that. think, wouldn't, so how much money is that, Dave? You know this stuff. I don't know. How much is he uh, guaranteed? Like a bunch of millions. A bunch of millions uh, with some zeros on top of that. If he just tweaks his knee <laughs> right now, he, he loses those bunch of millions. That's not going through his head. That's not, that's not impacting the way he plays. Because when I watched him play Utah, I didn't see him touch anyone for, <laughs> for a very long time. Um, so we'll see. I, I think personally, I think the biggest factor of that game on Saturday, if USC plays hard and plays like they want to win that game, where they are mentally is the biggest determining factor. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think, um, uh, not that UCLA is like playing perfectly by any stretch right now. And certainly the last two games have had some disconcerting signs. Uh, when UCLA played USC and they got blown out, that was at the absolute bottom point for yes. UCLA because Cody Riley and Jalen Hill were both out for the first time. That was Jalen Hill's first missed game. Um, Chris Smith obviously continuing to be out, struggling very much to find any sort of post-Smith, post-Hill identity um, and didn't have Riley to assert himself. So it was the worst possible situation to take on one of the top two or three teams in the league. Um, and it was at the Galen center. So all of those factors do play into it beyond just like the difference in the quality of the teams. I do think USC is on paper, a better team. Um, but UCLA, I think very clearly has a coaching advantage. Um, and, uh, I would, you know, assessing motivational factors. I think UCLA has consistently played like a more motivated team this year. Cause even the last two games, the way they started those games, this was clearly a motivated team. They got, um, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but they got, you know, way sped up and, and just kind of uncomfortable at the end, but it wasn't a matter of effort and motivation. So I expect them to bring it against USC. I expect it to be a relatively close game. I don't think it's going to be anything like what it was in early February. Uh, you said that USC is better on paper. I can go down. I can go down the list and and think there aren't too many teams that UCLA is better than on paper that we've seen them play recently. Yeah, um, I mean, I think so. Uh, this is something that I, I I've thought about a little bit because we've talked about the talent and we've kind of talked it down um, to an extent. And I think it's because we watched these guys and we've seen none of them have been consistent this year. Like even Hawkes, who we were both huge fans of last year. He's been up and down. Um, I th still think, like, generally speaking, he's good. Um, and, you know, Johnny Juzang, we've talked about to death. Um, but he's, you know. Who? <laughs> uh, but he's a, you know, he's a good offensive player. Um, Tiger Campbell has some inherent flaws based on size and relative quickness for his size and inability to hit three-point shots. But he's a good creator, and he doesn't really turn the ball over that much. Um I, I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, as, as Mick Cronin kind of put it, I think he put it, I think it was him, uh, they're a team of full of glue guys, but they're all, you know, they all bring something to the table. Um, and I think it's one of those teams where the, you know, the, the, the sum is greater, or the 
whole is greater than the sum of its parts. What am I trying to say? What's the phrase, the Tracy? Sum, the sum is greater than its part, than the parts. Something sure, like that. whatever. Yeah. One of those things that you say um, to mean that the team is better than the individual players would indicate. But I don't even think the individual players are all that bad. Um, you know, I think it's, I, I think we maybe overblow it a little bit. And not because we're being disingenuous, but we watch these guys all the time. So, you know, Jules I'm going to push back a little. I'm going to push back. I, I agree with what you're saying generally. We do watch and we see all their wards. And I'm not, they're, this, they're not a bad team. They're just not a greatly, greatly talented team comparatively. I mean, there are teams, uh, Colorado, uh, straight up, I'd probably take Colorado's talent, especially with, with uh, McKinley Wright. Well, McKinley um, Wright's one of those freaky senior dudes who just like, it yeah. feels like he just goes out there and just makes every shot. You know, it's weird. He kind of reminds me, I don't think it's even playing style, but he kind of reminds me of that Stanford point guard from way years ago, Chris Hernandez. Oh, yeah. Just like, like it's just, he's out there and he just makes every shot when he needs to. And it's just like, yeah. it's just annoying to watch. Like, could you stop doing that? Because like, <laughs> you shouldn't be that good, but you've just been there forever and now you're really good and it sucks. Could you God, stop? Chris Hernandez is one of my favorite, was one of my, has probably taught. 15 Pac-12 players since I've been doing this and top 10 prospects watching. So you know what kind of player he was. Picture him in high school <laughs> where he was just willing his team and AAU team to win. He was he was great. And UCLA wouldn't recruit him, but that's a whole different story. Well, yeah. I mean, um, you can get a point guard who can also like bench 350, which is what I think he was doing by his fifth year. Uh, yeah. That's also great. Yeah. Um. But I, I think if we're talking paper, uh, I don't uh, – we've talked about this before. Who, who are the – this is the way I, I – you, you got to look at this. Who are the pros on this team? Yeah. Johnny I mean, Juzang so, will play – will probably have a pro career. Sure. Uh, so, Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> no, I, I, I think he's probably the best prospect remaining on this like playing roster right now. The okay. thing is, and this is where maybe I'm um, being a little too college-centric, yeah, you're, I think you're right about the pro potential of this roster right now, but I think, so like Jules Bernard, that's a very good college player, um, yeah. and I think he's going to be even better next year if he sticks around. Jaime Hawkes, uh no, he's not a pro prospect, but he's going to be in school for four years, and he's going to be like one of those Wisconsin, like, just annoying dudes by his senior year where he's just, you know, scoring 16 points and eight rebounds. Um, Johnny Juzang's a pro, but, like, these are all – I guess what I'm saying is they don't have an un- – none of these guys are, like, below average college players. Like, these are all, like – pretty damn good college players and it's just I think inherent flaws that they don't necessarily project to the pros but I think we get caught up in how because you know we're used to following UCLA how these guys are going to be pros or whatever and I don't they're Uh, really effective in college they're really effective in college yeah but see what I'm saying when I say a pro prospect I, I understand what you're saying like well appreciate them for being the college player that they are I get that but when I'm saying pro prospect it's like Mick said, these guys are all glue guys. <laughs> yeah. But you, then you need that talent that 
is going to take that to the next level. That's going to make a play that all these glue guys can't. Oh, and just that's uh, going to be able to lock down. And this is the biggest key. And you know what? This is what we keep getting away with, uh, getting away from. Sorry, in all the discussion on the forums about who should be playing, who shouldn't be playing. And we just have to keep going back to it. And it's not the only factor, but it's a big factor, and that's defense. And when it comes to when I'm saying like a pro, let's just say a who is a potential pro player defensively on this team that you can send out there who's going to be able to shut oh, down the other, uh, other Jalen Clark. Jalen Clark. There is there aren't it used to be, I mean, if you look across at USC. There are a few guys who, who would qualify that have pro type of talent that they, they'll do something and go, wow, okay, yeah. Or, and then, or they stay in front of something and uh, someone and really defend them. It's, that's what I mean. I, I, I completely agree. These are, this is a good set of college players. Well, let me, but then you just need that little bit of talent that takes it to the next level on offense and on defense. Well, let me put it this way then. Um, UCLA has nobody as good as McKinley Wright. Maybe nobody as good as, I don't know. Well, no. Nobody's good at McKinley Wright. I think their number two is pretty comparable. Uh, you know, Evan Batty or Jariah Horn. But I would say they have four or maybe five starters who are better than Deshaun Shorts, who is uh, Colorado's fifth starter. Um, like, they're all, like, I would say it's it's a team full of, like, number two-ish to number three-ish guys. Um, right. Exactly. And that's UCLA. But that means, I mean, yeah, they don't have anyone as good as that top tier guy for many of these teams. Like, I think I'd say three to five. I, I, I sure. don't know if they okay. have, but they're all they're all starting. I would say they're all starting level Pac twelve guys. With you know, eh, the thing is, like, we a lot of conversation there's been about Tiger Campbell um, as a starting point guard for a Final Four team, which I do think there is an argument to be made that he is not the starting point guard for a Final Four team. But is he a Pac-12 level starter at point guard? Yeah, he is. Just maybe not for an elite high major who's going to go to the Final Four, but for a Pac-12 team? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think all of these guys are starter level dudes for a Pac-12 team. And there are a lot of Pac-12 teams who are not starting starter level dudes, even if they do have maybe a more talented player or even two more talented players than anyone on UCLA's roster. Does that make sense? Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and we're we're not we're just discussing details and nuance, really, because now let's bring in let's let's bring in the element of a Mick Cronin coach team. Now, when it comes to Tiger Campbell, I agree with you. I think he's a good point guard, good, and. Uh, as you said, there's going to be there could be elite guys that are much better than Tiger Campbell, right? But for when it comes to a Mick Cronin team, what you really need in your point guard primarily is a guy who can really defend the opposing point guard and just really alter that other point guard's game. Tiger can't do that. No. So when it comes to what kind of player Tiger is, he is a good point guard. For Mick Cronin's program, and I'm a Tiger Campbell fan, but I'm just telling you, I think there's a lot, there's a lot lacking there. Um, 
when it comes to Tiger Campbell. So it's just not what level of player is. In a run-and-gun type of program, Tiger would probably be even better. Yeah. Um, one, like, I mean, he, he came to play for Steve Alford, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's who he decided to play for. Um, I, I would bet, this, I don't know how this is going to go over, but if Tiger Campbell were a prospect out there right now, I don't think Mick Cronin would recruit him. Um, for the one main reason is he's going to look at him and watch him and go like him. Good, you know, good player. Who's he going to guard for me? Yeah. Well, and, and just like physically, he doesn't strike me as, uh, Cronin's prototype point guard. Like, I think he wants dudes who are going to be a little bit more big, a little bit bigger and a little bit more physical just, and not even, you know, necessarily great defenders to start out with, but just so that they can drive and finish. Um, cause I think that's a, we've seen it now, um, a big part of what, Cronin is doing to close games is basically isolation, you know, get a guy and just have him create some foul shots. Um, you know, he's talked about it at length. He just wants guys who can, you know, at the end of a game, you know, you got to be converting at the free throw line. Um, and Tiger just finishing against contact has never been a strong suit. Um, and I think just from that standpoint, he'd want somebody who's got a little bit of size, I guess. And this kind of goes into my, um, Kind of the whole thing I was getting into with Hicks a little bit on the board, but um, and Who? I think it's Greg Gregory Gregory Hicks, Greg. uh, man of Earth. men. Uh, uh, but with a team like this, where it is all complementary pieces, I think even better care needs to be um, kind of spent on figuring out how all of the pieces are going to complement each other, um, and what how how you're going to create the best combination of pieces because I don't know that it simply comes down to who is the most talented and play your five most talented. Um, and I know that's kind of antithetical, um, but I think it's because so many of these dudes have inherent flaws. Like Tiger Campbell is not big enough and he's actually for his size, probably not quick enough um, defensively. Um, Cause if you're going to be that like five, what are we actually calling Tiger? Five ten. He's 5'10", probably. Yeah, 5'10". If you're going to be 5'10", you've got to be, like, lightning bug. Um, and he's he's quick, but he's not that. Um, and then you've got Johnny Juzang, who's got flaws as a defender um, and is still learning good shot, bad shot. So he's your volume guy, and he can create stuff. And when in a pinch, you can use him to, like, you know, fill it up. But he's not consistent in that in that area. He's not your guy who's just going to reliably get you points at the end of a game. Jules Bernard has developed a lot as a player, um, but he still, you know, puts his head down and he still needs probably to be created for more than he is right now. Um, Jaime, who, you know, thickened up a little bit, has some issues defensively. Um, I think a common theme is all of these guys have deficiencies defensively, except for maybe Jules, but I would say his boiled down to kind of basketball IQ stuff. And then you've got Cody Riley, who, um, obviously is never going to be an elite post defender, lack of verticality, lack of, you know, ideal length, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you need to, when you're kind of building a starting lineup, um, you need to be cognizant of all the defensive deficiencies of all those guys and how do you best mitigate those? Um, and I think that's an area where, you know, I was getting into it with Hicks on the board, but just generally speaking, and, and it's not even an argument necessarily for David Singleton, although that's what kind of boiled down to, because that's more, I don't think you can play Singleton over Juzang at this point in the season, simply because you absolutely positively need that offense from Juzang, because there's nobody else who's going to consistently even get shots off, let alone make them. 
Um, but beginning of the year, that's a that's a more interesting complementary piece to me. You know, when you're playing alongside Chris Smith, who can create his own shot, uh, Jalen Hill, who can provide a little bit more of the backline defensive effort, um, because he's going to play a little bit better defense. He's going to move the ball offensively to get it into Chris Smith's hand, to get it into Jaime's hand, to get it into Jalen Hill or Cody Riley's hand. Um, and he's going to reliably knock down three points. Um, so that was the argument then. But the argument now is Jalen Clark, because as we just talked about, he does bring that defensive element. Even when he's making mistakes defensively, he's still bringing a lot more to the table than he's taking off. He bothers and disrupts. His work on the glass, I would say, from like a uh, rebounding instinct standpoint, just watching him, he's the best rebounder on the team. Um, he just knows how to position himself. He knows where to be. And he's got that good first jump and that really good second jump so that, you know, if it's a tip-in, he's going to get two opportunities at it. It's kind of like Jaime. Jaime has that ability, too, when he's feeling a little bit energized, where if he if he gets near the basket, he's getting that offensive rebound when he misses his own shot. Jalen's like that, too. Except I think he's got even better instincts and a little bit better athleticism um, for that. Um, so the thing I would be thinking of right now, and, and obviously it's late in the game and the season's almost over, um, but that's the guy who's interesting to me as more of a complementary piece um, to that starting lineup to help alleviate um, some of the major defensive issues uh, that are obviously present. So when you started on this ramble, yes, and, and saying ramble is not to imply that it wasn't just chock full of great information, but that it was a ramble. I wrote a little note that said Jalen Clark might have been this year's David Singleton. And then you brought it there. So we were like connected it was mentally yeah, on that. It was um, there's so many things, there's so many little aspects of this that I find really interesting. And I've talked to Robert Carpentier about it, and he's, he's actually, uh, he's written about it too. With this defense that that uh, McCrone runs, they switch most of the time, right? Yeah, that's what you see them doing. So when, like, Dave, when you go to write a review these days, and you're saying Johnny Juzang uh, matched up on Chris Duarte, it's all it's really difficult to say that because they get switched out so many times. There are so many possessions when they don't match up with the, with the guy that you thought they would match up with. Um, and Robert's theory, and he's been touting it in his previews and on the forum, I think, uh, is that maybe there should have been less switching given the fact that this team really, um, doesn't have great on ball defenders. And it was going up against a couple of teams that had, uh, McKinley Wright, uh, Chris Doherty, guys that you could really put your best defender on and keep him on and he could be effective and maybe limiting him a little rather than just allowing it. Uh, it's a switch and it's and it doesn't matter anymore anyway, that it might have helped to limit switching. Now, we're saying that in a vacuum. I mean, this is the kind of defense he teaches. I think it'd be really difficult to slip just to flip a switch and say, OK, we're not switching or we're not switching on this guy because there are elements of it where they switch more on some guys and switch less on others. I get that, but it's still a hard thing to do. But in a perfect world, maybe play if we were going to second guess this and we're nitpicking, but maybe Jalen Clark 
would have played a little more and you would have been able to assign him to, let's say, McKinley Wright. Or you would have been able to assign him to every other opposing team's best offensive player or best player uh, um, off the dribble and see how maybe this defense might have been a little different. Um, but that's a, there are a lot of ifs in there because there's a lot of switching going on. And when you have a switching defense like this, uh, when this defense is going to get really good under Mick Cronin is when he's got – he goes over that threshold of having enough – good on-ball defenders. Let's say two in the in the uh, lineup at all times to where if you switch, most of the time you're... Right now when they're switching, they're getting... Uh, opposing teams are getting a mismatch. You have two or three good on-ball defenders, you switch, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, you, you're just... That's just not going to happen. So there's so many little subtleties and nuances to this that make it... They make it very interesting when you really start analyzing. Like I know you must think about it too. You're you're starting to say who's matching up with whom when you're doing the review, and then you said, okay, well, he wasn't on him in that possession. He wasn't on him in that possession, yep. and and all they do, you know, opposing offenses now just switch the guy off. So I really would like probably in the off season to maybe sit down with Mick Cronin and say how hard is it not to switch. Like to to flip that to flip the switch on not switching. <laughs> well, I think it's both a on court strategy for sure, but I think it's also a matter of recruiting and um, it, you know, in, in in the same sense that football, you know, you'll play a pro style offense not necessarily because it's most effective, but because it'll also help you in recruiting because that's what they do in the NFL. The NBA is almost all switching now um, because right. guys are so good. Because everyone at, can shoot. Yeah, everyone can hit a yeah. three pointer. In college, it's not quite there. Um, You know, guys are not one through five can hit threes. So I don't, I still think it's more, it's more the way the game is going versus, you know, 15 years ago. Um, But I don't know that it's absolutely necessary um, at the college level, the way it is. um, That's, That's really interesting because you make a great, great, great point. It used to be college would play its game. And the NBA would be different. And then when you went into the NBA, you you learned. I mean, you had the fundamentals of playing basketball, but then you learned a different style yeah. of basketball. Now, college basketball, between switching and, I mean, the pick and roll offense, it's taking its cue from the NBA, even though that might not necessarily be the best style to play. Yeah, which is and. I, I, and it, it, we could talk endlessly about why that's going on. I mean, from a recruiting standpoint, from, you know, prospects are watching that and that's how they're playing, you know, when yeah. they're growing up and they're learning how to play. And when you get them, it's, I would think right now it would be so difficult to play a defense where you don't switch. I mean, yeah. remember Howland's defenses? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, that would be so tough that go around those screens, push through those screens, go around the top well, of the screen. Well, that's the thing is I think also it's the effort expense from a team that is not um, uh, not all energized defenders, you know, and I think that's just the reality of it. It's not fully mixed roster. Um, I, I think there's probably a ton of different factors that go into it. I don't know if they're going to want to switch this much once he's got, you know, higher level athletes at all these positions. Um because 
you know, even when they play Jalen Clark, you'll see he's not switching nearly as much as the other guys. Like he will, you know, kind of uh, cheat a little bit, but then get back to his guy. Um, it's a, a little bit more of that because he can recover better. Um, but I think if you remember the beginning of last year, especially like the way the, and even sometimes this year, um, the way they struggle rotating sometimes it's just wide open three, wide open three, wide open three that, you know, you, you just, the recovery isn't there to not switch. Um, cause even with the switching, they're often leaving dudes just wide open. And in theory, that shouldn't be as possible. Um, and so it's just, uh, I, I don't know. The, the thing that I go back to though, is even in a switching defense, the guys who are the more versatile defenders make more sense to play. Jalen Clark can guard one through five. So those weird mismatches that we see where Cody Riley's on a guard, uh, they don't happen with Jalen Clark on the floor. You know, if he's on a guard, fine. If he's on Evan Batty, fine. You know, it's, he's going to knuckle up and, and, do some good stuff regardless of who he's matched up against. Um, so I think, and this wasn't true a month ago. I think Jalen Clark has grown a lot in the last month um, where he's much more playable. He's much, I would say he's a lot calmer offensively. I don't think he's gotten a ton more skilled, but he's a lot calmer. Um, and he's finding his spots a little bit better, which are either right under the basket or he's just sitting down in the corner to take like basically a set shot. Um but he's, I think he's much more playable than he was a month ago. And I'd be looking for ways to get him in there now because I don't think he's nearly as much of a liability offensively as he was um, in January and February. And I, and I think Cronin's doing that, clearly. And uh, I, it was an interview last week, too, which was, you know, what's really, what's really kind of reassuring is when uh, the UCLA head coach is interviewed and he says things where you go, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So someone asked him about Jalen Clark last week about his defensive ability. And he said, well, I'd like to have five of those guys. <laughs> I'd like to have five Jalen Clarks. And that's exactly what he's looking to do to recruit. Well, at least three, a point guard, a post and three Jalen Clarks. Yeah. And you have that kind of team damn, that defense is going to be fantastic and it's going to be a switching a switching defense where it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter who gets switched on to whom. And that's when we get to that point. I don't know if we're going to be there next year. But when we get to that point where we have that revelation, Dave, at one point where we look up during a game and say, okay, We've gone over the threshold. UCLA now has three really good defenders on the court at one time, and it's a re- at least three. Let's say four. Let's get let's get greedy and say four or five. Yeah. And and now they can play good defense. That's going to be the I think personally the turning point of this program yeah. because as soon as you're able to do that, then Mick Cronin can do everything else he wants to do. Anything else offensively, anything he can get on a break more, he can press, he can do whatever he wants. As soon as we go over that threshold of having enough good defenders. Yeah, and I think that's all through, at this point, I think it's all through newcomers. Because having watched Jules a lot, I think he's a fine defender. 
But when we're talking about three good defenders, what we really mean with wing defense is like three guys who are like Aaron Aflalo, Cedric Bozeman, and Luke Richard and Bob Mute, that first final four year. That just gives me chills when you say Yeah, that. but okay. right yeah. now they've got one guy who has that potential. And Jalen Clark isn't there yet, but by next year I think he might be. Um, yeah. But you've got one. You need two more, and those need to happen in recruiting. Now, Peyton Watson, um, uh, anytime you get one of those big five-star guys, I, I'm skeptical, but he's got some athletic attributes that might make him pretty intriguing defensively, but I don't think he's going to be on that level next year. Yeah, okay, uh, this is very interesting, too, because I've been writing that I foresee Peyton Watson uh, – staying two years at UCLA, that he's not going to be one and done. And people are arguing with me. And of course, this is all just speculative and we absolutely can disagree and, and have different opinions. Why I'm saying that about Peyton Watson is there are guys who are ranked uh, a lot because of, uh, are ranked highly because of how they literally are performing and their result on the court, like an AU ball they're shooting 10 threes a game. They're, you know, everything around the basket, they're converting and dunking. And then there are other guys, and there's a blend of this too, but there are other guys that you're ranking just mostly on upside. Peyton Watson is the guy you're ranking on upside. Um, because he's grown from 6'4 to about 6'8, 6'7 to 6'8. Uh, he's gotten longer. He's gotten more athletic. He's gotten more skilled, but... He's still a ways away. Um, he's not a guy. Uh, he's not a guy who's going to come in and, like I wrote recently, he's not going to average 17 points a game. Uh, I'd be shocked. He just doesn't shoot the ball well enough to be able to do that. Um, he's good off the dribble, but he's not like it. it he's not like a really. Uh, he's not a polished guy off. Uh, putting the ball on the floor right now. The the potential is there because you got a six eight six eight guy who can sweep and get the ball down about eight inches above the ground. So that's fantastic. But he's a ways away. When it comes to defense, what he does give you is he's going to be very similar, I think, to Chris Smith when it comes to defense. Um, and let's say he's a year ahead of Chris Smith. So how was Chris Smith as a junior defensively? I mean, I'm sorry, as a sophomore defensively. Do you remember Chris Smith? Good? Uh, inher- Had some holes? Um, yeah, but, but the thing is, I would say, I would say best case scenario, he's like Chris Smith last year because he'll okay. actually have a defensive coach. You know, Chris okay, Smith as a sophomore that. didn't have a coach. Right. Um, and if he is that, that's great. I think he's still going to be a little bit, as Jalen Clark is this year where he shows flashes of greatness and then there are just breakdowns where he's just making freshman mistakes, that's going to be Peyton Watson next year. Could could people look at him and say, could the NBA and say, wow, we're going to take him purely on, on his upside? That absolutely could happen. He could decide to go because he's late first round or even second round because he just wants to you know go. But... As an effective college player and defender next year, he's going to have – he's not going to be a guy that comes in that you just say, oh, my God, wow, that's amazing. He will give you more athleticism on the perimeter. Yeah. He, 
he has the potential to be what Jalen Clark was this year defensively. I think that's about the level you can expect. And if you get those two guys, because I don't think you're going to, I don't think there's necessarily another perimeter guy who's going to provide that. I mean, Will McClendon, I'm, I think you're maybe a little higher on him than I am. Um, I don't know. Um, he looks kind of thick to me. Um, I don't know if he's going to immediately come in and be like a defensive stopper. Um, when I've seen him in person, and it's now admittedly a very long time ago, <laughs> um, he was a guy who had, if you pictured David Singleton, but more athletic, mm. uh, where he could, he could move his feet better, stay in front of people, and he was just really physical and tough. He's one of those guys that's just going to put his chest on people and, and just keep bumping them until they're worn down and completely annoyed with the ability to stay in front of people. So as a defender, he, he is kind of thick. But when I saw him, I was really impressed with his. He was playing defense in AU ball, and he was playing it well. Um, I liked him defensively. Isn't that... So, uh, just an aside, isn't that kind of a Manfro effect, though? Do you remember my Manfro effect theory? <laughs> Which is, the guy who plays really, really hard in practice tends to get overrated? Yeah, no, but that isn't, that isn't this. I mean, in AAU ball, in my experience of doing this, are most of the guys who can play good defense in AAU ball, it, trans, it, it yeah, translates yeah, yeah. to games in college. Yeah. Um, well, I, so great that if, if he can turn out to be, I, I still think it ends up being just, I mean, if anybody out there is looking at that death chart next year, he's definitely going to be coming off the bench. Um, from like yes. a starting lineup standpoint, I don't know if you're finding that third wing, unless Chris Smith comes back, who's going to provide you plus defense. Um, so then it's, I think it's a matter of finding that post player who's going to provide some of that switchability himself. Um, you know, cause if you think about that. So if you think about Jalen Clark and Peyton Watson, say Jalen Clark's your plus defender, Peyton Watson has that potential. Um, if you could also add a guy like Jalen Hill, and not necessarily Jalen Hill, uh, but a guy like Jalen Hill, a guy who has that ability to switch on to, you know, twos and threes and not completely lose his mind when he's a five, um, that, that team you could suddenly think about it as a good defensive team, but it requires all those guys kind of you know, it requires basically starting Jalen Clark next year um, yeah. to say that that's going to be a defensive team. And that, so this is maybe, uh, we're going so far afield right now. Um, no, but this is, this is fun. This is, but this, yeah. That's going to require, I think, a little bit of a philosophy shift from this year because this year has been, I, I, I don't think there's a way to think about this year where it hasn't been about prioritizing offense. The decision to start Juzang at the beginning, or when he came in, so three games into the year, four games into the year, uh, the decision to start Riley over Hill, even after Hill was healthy and back, those were decisions prioritizing, you know, offense, prioritizing getting the ball in the bucket. Um, next year, if, you know, if you're trying to embrace the elite skill on the team, uh, Jalen Clark's going to be among them um, in terms of his elite defensive ability. But that's going to be a, a, a shift because I don't think he's going to be as advanced um, offensively as certainly Juzang next year. But that's going to, I think that's actually going to be the conversation. When I'm playing out um, what that roster is going to look like, it might be making the choice between Jalen Clark and Johnny Juzang as your starter. Which one are you going to do? 
That's really interesting too, because I think, and I think Hicks has made this point too. Um, I think Cronin had an, a clear acknowledgement that uh, no matter who he puts on the floor, he's just not going to. And this was probably before Jalen Clark really became usable for more than a few minutes a game. Whoever he put on the floor, once you lost Chris Smith and Jalen Hill, uh, eh, the defense is going to be what it is. Uh, and my only way to win was probably to get a good offensive team on, on the court because I'm just not going to improve this team defensively that much. Next year creates a dilemma. Yeah. <laughs> um, if they get, let's, let's just say a big F, but, and I'm, I'm saying this, I, this is obviously purely speculative, but I would think they would probably have a good chance to get a, a good transfer post player. And the priority would be a, a really good defensive transfer post player. And I think UCLA would be prioritizing that also. Let's just say that happens. Um, uh, Johnny Juzang, given what we've seen, you would think he's probably an untouchable to, to, for that starting lineup, right? Based off of usage this year, but then think about who else is coming in. Right. Because you, is, you're, you've, got a, you've got a potential one-and-done guy where if you don't start Peyton Watson next year, that becomes a little bit of a politics issue. Like, it does. Because you're saying if you're a one-and-done or a guy who's got a very good chance of being one-and-done or, you know, Tracy's there, maybe a two-and-done. But if you're that type of guy, you're not guaranteed to start here. Um, I completely agree. So let's say he starts. Uh, let's say not even to begin the season, but after say, a few let's games. Let's say Chris Smith shines on the uh, senior day thing, and he comes back. No, let's not even do Chris Smith. Let's just because it's too crowded. Okay, but then Jaime. Jules, Jules Bernard, Jaime Jaquez, or Jalen Clark. Look, Jaime has been mixed spirit animal for two years now. Is he not starting next year? Right. That's his spirit animal. You're right. Peyton Watson is in there, and Johnny Juzang's in there. Yeah. But then you got Jalen Clark and Jules Bernard. Right. Jules Bernard, who has, um, I think, gone from being your seventh guy, eighth guy, to being an obvious starter this year. Um, I think so, too. So on a, on a better team, maybe he could still be your sixth man. But you're talking about a lot of guys then who – because the thing is, Jalen Clark, I think, is the best potential defender on the team. He's the best defender on the team right now, and he's an elite potential defender. Right. So I think you've got to get him. You've got to get him in the starting lineup. But if you do that, you're essentially saying one of Juzang, Peyton Watson, two of Juzang, Peyton Watson, Jaime Jaquez, uh, and Jules Bernard are going to be sixth and seventh guys, basically. Yeah. I don't know. That's that's tough to think. Of course, we're trying to project what these guys will be like by next October, November. But just by the way Mick has used the guys that we've seen so far, I'd have to think Jules Bernard is, is the one that might come off the bench. And I don't agree with it. And I, I can't condemn Mick for something he hasn't done yet. <laughs> But he's been the, he he moved from starter to bench to you know he's done that a couple of yeah. times. Jaime Hawkes, as you said, is his spirit animal. Johnny Juzang is an untouchable. 
Peyton Watson, I can't, unless he's just not even close to what we think he's going to be, so he has a reason not to start him or play him a lot of minutes. And then you've got Jalen Carr. I mean, we've gone, every time we keep going through this right now, we don't get any a clearer picture. So well, and that's, that's, it's going to be really interesting to juggle, to juggle those minutes. Well, um, and you're going to have to, so this year, I don't think they've been particularly tight with their wing rotation. If you're going to try to keep all those guys in the fold, um, you've got to have a tight, tight rotation. It doesn't leave minutes for uh, essentially David Singleton or Jake Kyman. Um, right. You, you, and that's no knock on those guys, but um, you just, there's no other way that you're keeping all of those dudes in the fold. Um, because you're going to be asking somebody who started this year to not start next year. And, and then I uh, think that's, yeah. that's trouble. And then I think the other, as we've all talked about for a long time, um, and it's become really, really obvious in the last few games, UCLA would need to find a, 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 a transfer point guard also to at least back up um, Tiger and, and or Jules Matt, Bernard goes into a deep off-season training program. <laughs> yeah, uh, or at least back uh, or back up Tiger, or at least you know uh, provide a better matchup at, at, with different teams when you need someone who can defend the point better than Tiger can. Yeah, um, those are those are our big priorities for the transfer portal. And the thing is, I think it's very realistic. Um, if you're if you're a big out there and you're, you know, right now you're have some eligibility left, you're on a team that probably isn't going to make the tournament, or let's say you're originally from Southern California, something like that, and you are a big and you're you're you you're ten and eight a game, um, and you're a good shot blocker and you're athletic. You'd have to think. Dang, I'd be able to walk into this team, play in the NCAA, at least play in the NCAA tournament, and maybe do and make a lot more noise and damage than that, um, and probably start. Because you, you, we still don't think Mac Eddian will be a starter by next year. Um, yeah, even, I, I think he's he going to be much more playable. I think he's probably going to be playable. 15 minutes, but I think asking him to go from what he's doing now to 25 a game next year—that's yeah. tough. Yeah. So. It's going to be very interesting, and I I would I would suspect that UCLA is going to look a lot is very attractive to maybe transfers in this offseason. Um, but man, it is going to be it is going to be really interesting. One thing that one thing that would make this a lot easier is if Johnny Juzang just incrementally gets better defensively, to where he's not such a liability. If on he defense. just played. So the thing is, like, I don't, I, I don't think he ever rose to like decent on average for the season. But there were a couple of games here and there where he was more engaged and committed, and particularly on the defensive glass. If he's contributing on that side, um, and he shores up his shot selection a little bit, passes it a little bit more, probably takes like two fewer shots a game, but they're better shots. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can't not play that guy. Um, yeah, because that version of Juzang is going to be, he, he's going to be draftable. Um, that version, 
you know, the one who's actually hitting the defensive glass regularly and who's using his, I think, plus passing skills actually, like actually doing it, um, and uh, and has shown just a little bit better shot selection. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's a that's an NBA prospect. He's just got to get there. Um, yeah, and so yeah, you get some development from him. He's still got to be a starter, um, and then it becomes, I think, probably a, a it's a Clark Bernard thing or a Clark Hawkes thing, um, and it sort of depends on what you need in there at any given moment. Um, and that that presents an interesting thing because Jaime in in this one in four out lineup. Hawkes, you know, conventionally defends or at least starts out on the opposing four. He matches yeah. up with that. And let's say Jaime's 6'6", 215, would you say? Sure. Let's say. He's commonly defending a guy who's 6'7", 6'8", a little bit bigger, wider. And against those guys, he does a pretty good job. Actually, it's it's the quicker, smaller guys he kind of struggles with. But Jalen Clark next year in that role, who who do you think might be able to defend, have more versatility of defending? Well, we know a quicker, smaller guy. I would put my money on Jalen Clark. But the six seven kind of slower power forward, I would think Jalen Clark would be able to do that at least as well by next year. Yeah, and that's and that's where it gets into kind of a tricky topic because again, you're talking about Mick Cronin's spirit animal. Um, yeah. And but the thing is, Jalen Clark probably does a lot of those defensive things better. Um, they're honestly they're they're pretty similar in what in a lot of what they're bringing into the table. I think uh, Jaime is a little bit more skilled offensively. Well, probably a lot more skilled offensively. He can dribble a lot better. Um, you know, can probably handle it a little bit better um, in traffic, but it's they're soft skills um, uh, in terms of like offensive rebounding, what they're bringing to the glass and what they're bringing defensively. Clark might already have the edge, and he I think almost certainly will next year um, in the major areas where you're getting benefits from Jaime. Um, and, and I personally think I'm just going to go. On record, by mid-season next year, Jalen Clark is going to be really good. He's going to be one of the best players on the team, and we're going to be walking away going, "Yeah, that's not the glue guy. That's that's the that's the higher level guy who who can take this team. Maybe not next year, but take the program to a higher level." Oh, I'm, and I'm, then, I'm pretty much already there. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and then we put a pin in it. But let's get back to it. Throw in Chris Smith. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And, and that's, ah! But that's the thing where I'm like, anybody who's still speculating about getting Amari Bailey on this team next year, I'm like, what the hell? Why? Why? Yeah. Because the thing is, all you're doing there is forcing another guy out. Because there's no way you're going to find minutes for all these dudes. Yeah. And it's not like, I, I get it. You're like, well, you know, he's better than Jules Bernard next year, which I don't even know is necessarily going to be true. But let's even say that's true. There's value in keeping your fourth year guy. <laughs> like there's just yeah. value in having that experience. And this is not the kind of program that I think Mick Cronin has any interest in building, which is the one that has constant churn, the one that has constant yeah. one and dones just coming in and forcing out his experienced dudes. He wants to build a program through experience and leaving it with um, you know, one and done talents or two and done talents who can bring it up a level. 
But I don't think he has interest in forcing out a guy of the caliber of Jules Bernard, um, who he spent a lot of time developing. Um, and so yeah. it's just, you, you, you've got to be cognizant of that. Um, and, and then when we're talking Chris Smith, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've asked around to people who usually know and they say, no one has I, any idea. I swear, I don't know. I, he was a guy, like I said before, when it comes to his decision before the season, whether he was going to uh, stay in the draft or not, he kept that decision really close to the vest. Not anyone knew. And it's very similar right now. Not anyone knows. I think the program is assuming he's leaving. But they would not be surprised because of the type of kid Chris is, which is not only just academic-minded, but he's a little hes a little different. He's not your... He's not like your typical, I want to go to the NBA so quickly and that's all I can think about. Um, he might make an offbeat decision and decide to stay. Uh, I think that's a very, very realistic possibility. He is going to go through the senior ceremony before the SC game tomorrow, which really doesn't say that much. Um, or does it? <laughs> No, I think it does. Um, I, yeah. Well, if he, if he didn't, it would really say something. Put yeah. it that way. Oh, yeah. Totally would. Um, yeah, and thinking about that roster, that starting lineup, when you stick in Chris Smith, because it's it almost creates, again, all of those issues. Because you weren't anticipating him coming back, so you built a roster without him. And then you think about him, okay, so you slot him in there, right? So does Peyton Watson still start? If Chris Smith is in there, well, you know this is this is what if you watched have you watched Oregon play a lot? I mean, most of the time they played. I mean, they had their point guard, and then they had four guys who were wingish, wing wingish. I'd say wings. Yeah, I mean, their next biggest guy was Eugene, and he's yeah, so, liberally six seven. So you and do then that. They, so you make you make Chris Smith your like. I don't know. You're basically just doing a five-out offense, but somebody's banging on the inside. Maybe it's Jalen Clark. So you have Chris Smith playing like a quote five. You've got Peyton Watson at a quote four or whatever, three. You've got Jalen Clark in there playing either the two or playing the four there, and then Johnny Juzang at the two and then a point guard. (laughs) It's fun to think about. It truly is. It's going to cause... As long as you and what Oregon does is they run they run that offense and then occasionally throw out one of their bigs from the bench, uh, just to match up with the opposing big. But then what they also do is usually like when a big catches the ball, three of those wings converge on him because they're quick enough to double and triple the post and then rotate back out. So I mean, it's kind of exciting to think about UCLA maybe playing that way. I don't. So this is the thing: is watching Mick Cronin coach and seeing the teams he's had over the years. I don't know if he'd be comfortable with a roster like that. Well, you probably if you would have watched Cincinnati before he played a two post offense, then he came here and went to a one post offense. It's true. So I I, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I mean, I think I think Cronin is sharp enough to be able to adapt to to his talent, which he did last year when he realized he wasn't going to play. Uh, Jalen Hill and Cody Riley together. So I don't know. I don't know. Very, it would be. It's a lot of fun to think about. Put it that way. It is a but lot of fun to think. About. I think a lot would depend on the personnel. If they get a, a, 
a starter level level transfer post, I think that makes the decision for you. Yes, yeah, because then you're going to play him, then it tightens everything, and then you um, are going to have to do a lot of uh, charismatic work to keep everyone happy. Yes. So we've gone really far afield. It, they might beat USC or they might lose. Who knows? <laughs> that, that's what we started out. We said we were going to talk about the USC game. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, um, this season, I, for me, it kind of... Look, it's still interesting to watch. I'm still way more engaged in all these games than I like pretty much ever was under Alford, but certainly over the last like four years of the Alford era. Like it's just so much more fun. Like and even when they're playing bad, it's more fun because you actually care. Like you're, yeah. you're you care that they're playing bad. Like Tracy, yeah. like on uh on Thursday or Wednesday when they lost to Oregon and it was just in that same fashion they lost to Colorado, I was still like steaming mad like forty five minutes later. And yeah. I haven't felt like that about a UCLA basketball game in like ten years. So And you know why? And I'll tell you why. The first thirty minutes were, were the best It was so good. Best basketball UCLA's played I mean, better than almost you could cherry pick any game among Steve Alford's years, maybe throw out Lonzo Ball, but and that game was better played for 30 minutes. So you got so hyped by it and you started to see the Pac-12 championship based on how well they were playing. That's why 45 minutes later, after they melted down, you were pissed. Yeah, because no, they played like, so well. It, it wasn't quite, but like I was feeling the same feelings that I felt as like a you know, whatever I was, 20-year-old after they melted down against Florida uh, in that championship game. Or no, 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 it was as a 21-year-old. No, it was a 20-year-old in the second second Final Four where they did the exact same stupid thing against Florida that they did the previous year. That's what it felt like to me. Um, It's just like this is the same stupid thing we just watched. Okay, no no segue at all. Let's uh, look at the football. Yeah, please do. Let's do Okay. All right. Uh, so the football schedule came out. Uh, UCLA, um, I broke it down with a story, so we'll kind of go over it. It was fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And I told you, we were talking, you had a lot going on, and I kind of just, hey, Dave, were you going to do it? And then you, you, you magically did a schedule analysis, like, in about 45 seconds. Magical. It was magical. It truly it was. It truly was. Um, so, uh, I would say the main takeaway I have from it is that there is nothing on this schedule that should prevent UCLA from having a season that keeps Chip Kelly as the head coach. There's nothing in here that should be daunting in the, did you actually write that? You didn't write that though. No, but that's my takeaway. Oh, Um, okay. So you're adding something. This is my, well, those are my early takeaways. This is my medium term takeaways. Oh, that's nice. Um, so I would say there's nothing in here that inherently makes it so it's hard for Chip Kelly to continue as the head coach at UCLA. He should be able to win seven games. Um, right. The first two years, uh, there were some schedule factors that would have prevented anything but a very good UCLA team from winning seven games uh, because the non-conferences were very hard in retrospect. This one, it doesn't look that way. Uh, Hawaii and Fresno State are both eminently winnable games, and uh, LSU is coming off one of its worst seasons uh, this millennium. So UCLA could very well go 3-0 and in non-conference. Um, it's not out of the question. And that alone makes this one pretty easy, um, or at least manageable. 
They've got seven home games versus five road games. They've got two bye weeks. Um, it's the tougher half of the of the Northwest split. You know, they've got Washington and Oregon. But aside from that, um, this even if you go four and five in conference, um, win the four home games, lose the five road games, or whatever, uh, this should still. If everything, you know, it's all setting up, they've got a bunch of juniors now, they've got experience everywhere, they're returning the most production in the in all of college football, they should be able to go at least seven and five here. Um I'm I'm completely agreeing with you, but I think I'm going a little a little bit further. Um because as of right now. I think I think Stanford's going to implode. Uh, I they, as you wrote, that four and two record last season was that very easily should should have been two and four, <laughs> um, and they have not recruited well. For we'll put it this way, their last good recruiting classes have now are now gone. So they've been the team that next year is based on are not good recruiting classes. Um, I think the jigs up on on your best friend. Oh, yeah. I mean, you guys barbecue in the off season. Yeah, yeah, right? no, we party. You and you and Dave. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I knew that. Yeah, we get out. Um, I think ASU will be pretty good. I think ASU will be a tough game, but then you've got rollover games. I, I think Arizona, uh, Utah. Will Utah be good? They're always good. That'll be They're a tough game. They're always good, but it will be a winnable game, yeah. I think. Uh, so there's so many. Colorado, going to fall a little bit fall off from, from last year. Cal. Cal's bad. I think there's uh, – and I think UCLA, like you said, is going to be better. It has to be better, but it's going to be better if you base it on – if you're going to buy into Chip Kelly's at least – theory on building a program at UCLA that I'm going to get some guys who have some upside that I can develop. They're not immediate impact guys, but I'm going to develop them and we're going to have a great player development system. And by the time they're older, we'll be able, we'll have a team. Well, this is the year because he's been developing all these guys for, you know, this will be the fourth year of development. Um, I think I think it's eight wins, and I given what we've been through and what I, I I'm not accept I personally am not accepting anything less than eight. Oh, would, oh, would they oh, keep oh, it? Oh. Would they if, keep if, him on with seven? Yes, but it's got to be at least eight. I know you're going to say so nine. This is a different <laughs> conversation we're having. Now. It is. No, no, no. no. I'm not saying I, nine. I layered uh, on top of it. Chip Kelly in his fourth year at UCLA. No, he should be winning ten or eleven. Okay, I put it. I put it incorrectly. I'm saying they should still fire him at seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should. I'm saying okay. what it is is based off of my dumbed down expectations for UCLA, based off of the moribund first three years. Even with that, even acknowledging that, this is probably a seven win team. Like they can get there, but in a like with the talent they have at this at, uh, available and with the experience and the fact that it's the fourth year for the head coach who was supposed to come in and you know immediately revamp and revolutionize everything, 
uh, all that hydration and, and, you know, diet stuff should be paying off by now. Yeah, they should win 10 games. Um, and then here's, here's the thing, too. Uh, Think about how hydrated they are right now, Tracy. <laughs> I just took a sip of water myself. Uh, if they do win just seven, and then let's say they win eight or nine, recruiting will turn around in such a way um, that you – I think I wrote recently – and this is this is really a weird. I don't think I've ever been able to write this before. This staff doesn't even know how well UCLA can recruit if it wins. Um, the the recruits that are going to be calling up UCLA are going to blow their mind. If you've noticed what a lot of recruits are saying right now is, and this isn't just BS hype that the that the staff has fed these kids because they're just not that aggressive in, <laughs> in feeding them a, a sales job. This is the kids that recruits legitimate perception of the program after last season. The program's going in the right direction. I can see that it's going in the right direction. Every single recruit that's commenting about UCLA is saying that. If they get to seven wins, just even seven, but if they get to eight, nine, or ten, that only reaffirms that for all those recruits and some guys who are kind of on the fence who aren't really greatly interested in UCLA right now will become, will turn around and become interested. And then you'll have the transfer portal. And we've talked so much about this. The transfer portal is, is key for Chip Kelly. So I think even though I'm not happy with seven wins, I, I think he is, he has gotten through the storm his self-created storm for the first three years. And then the program is on track to be successful. If he does that, given where recruiting will go and the transfer portal, but man, this, this was, and I, I know this is your basic takeaway. This was so much harder than it needed to be. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I I'm, I, I'm sold on the idea that winning will improve recruiting. Um, the question is whether it will improve it enough. Um, I don't think seven wins. Uh, I don't think seven wins by itself does it enough to improve the program such that like the next year, because the thing is like, I don't know, man, they, they don't know how well UCLA can recruit because they don't care. And they didn't care. Um, if they cared, they would have been recruiting like that from the beginning. Um, so guys are going to call them and they're going to say, oh yeah, here, talk to our like assistant director of football ops. I got to go watch some film. Yeah, you know, but that's not, yeah, that's not kind of how it works. How it works is that coaches get excited. They're, they're human beings and they're doing something that most of them don't want to do. And that's recruit. They want to coach. They don't want to recruit. So when things are going badly, well, you, when you're not doing well at something, you don't want to do it. When you've, when you've got someone interested in you and you have the potential to do really well at something, you're suddenly very interested in it and you want to do it. It'll turn around their energy when it comes to recruiting. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the way I've seen it happen. That's just not me speculating. I've seen so many coaches, football and basketball, who suddenly become active recruiters as soon as, you know, recruits are interested in them 
As soon but, as the activity is done by somebody else. Um, yeah, exactly. So wait, let's get back to the schedule. Um, your your little thing down here at the end. My scales. Let's, let's yeah. Let's just lay a little nugget down here. Do you you think you think they go seven and five? Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. you're saying. Um, well, I'd probably go between six and six and seven and five. Okay, so six and a half and. Yeah, I would, I would, I would set the over under at six and a half. Okay. Um, I, I think, I, I think seven and five also. That's where I think they go. So, for all the people who were listening to this podcast, we just paid you off. It's been about an hour and twenty minutes, and we just gave you our predictions for next season. They love it. Whew! That was great. That's great. Hey, I've been meaning to tell you something. So, um, I know you're in that competition for best COVID beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know the the actor Jason Manzukis? No, it's a great comedic uh, uh, actor. He was in uh, Sleeping with Other People. Um, okay, on a, yeah, I've got the beard was, now. I'm looking at yeah, it. He was on a talk show. That's what his beard was before COVID. If you look at like IMDb, that was his pre-COVID beard. It is now about four inches added to that and gray. And he's talking very much in this interview I saw with him about his COVID beard. And I just wanted to bring it up that I think it's highly competitive with yours. Mine's pretty bad. Yeah. His is pretty crazy now too. I got, I got to tell you. But yeah, no, mine he is has getting... an all-star beard before this. He's got a fantastic beard. But yeah. Yeah, mine I, has big, um, you know, man on the street yelling crazy things at you uh, energy right now. Because it's kind of, it's gray, so it looks just vaguely dirty all the time. Um, yes. And it's big. Um, like, it's it's kind of doing that thing where it almost like, because mine is just bushy, it's kind of curling up at the ends. So it just yeah. looks crazy. Like, it doesn't, it, it, it's not a good look whatsoever. His, his very much also. Okay. And if you don't know who Jason Mazukas is, just watch some of his stuff because he is he's the he's like a supporting actor. He was a stand-up comedian. He's he's excellent. He's just have you ever seen that movie Sleeping with Other People? I haven't, but I've seen him in other stuff. Oh uh, my god. His he's face is just, very familiar to me. He has one big line that's become one of our family lines. It's like, my love is conditional. <laughs> he's screaming to his kid playing soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember him in the good place. Um, yes, yes, and that was one of his weaker. Yeah, that was one of his weaker. But he's. I'm sorry. It's a uh, series on. I think it's on Netflix. He's excellent in that. He's he's great. Anyway, okay. I'm his agent too. So, yeah, no, I, yeah. I I I respect your work. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, you got anything else, Tracy? No, that was it. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for staying with us. Um, we'll be back again next week, probably talking Pac-12 tournament, NCAA tournament, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we have to say, tomorrow, I mean, I wrote that article. We didn't even talk about it. That is a huge game against SC. So much. Just think about right now where we all are. You're kind of thinking SC is going to win. UCLA is going to Think about how it's going to feel after that game if UCLA wins. Just try that on for size. How that feels. Try pretty it good, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty, okay. pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yes. 
All right. Well, for Tracy Pearson, I am David Woods, Burn Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and we will talk to you again next time. Everyone stay safe.